Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That apostolic blessing is about the only gospel you've gotten so far today, isn't it? Quite a fun little text from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In fact, I'd invite you to use your uh, pew Bibles today. Open up to page 937 and walk with me through this text a little bit this morning. Uh, 957. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So what is going on here? Bodies strewn across the desert, 23,000 killed in a single day, serpents sent to destroy people, pretty typical Old Testament stuff, right? I bet if you heard a sermon on this text yesterday, you didn't hear anything about bodies strewn across the desert, probably something about the temptation bit at the end of the pericope. It's a good thing we didn't end the reading today with the statement, this is the gospel of the Lord. Well, it's not the gospel, and there is no gospel in it. Why? Because this text is a warning. A very stern warning to some people who had become confused about God. I want to start, actually, at the conclusion, if you look at verse 12. Of course, whenever you see a therefore in Paul, you got to pay attention because here's where the payoff is. And what does he say in verse 12? Therefore, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Now, Paul is not addressing just anyone here. It's not a generic person. He is talking to some people in the church in Corinth who considered themselves quite theologically adept and spiritually mature. They heard the gospel of Christ and took that to be freedom. Once we have Christ, we are free to do all kinds of things. Their favorite favorite slogan was this, All things are permissible to me. Paul quotes this back to them a couple times in the letter. In chapter 5, what's permissible, according to these people, is hanging around with prostitutes. In chapter 6, what's permissible, it's suing the pants off your brother Christian. In chapter 7, what's permissible, it's putting your spouse aside. And in chapters 8, 9, and 10, three whole chapters on this What was permissible, according to these theologically adept and spiritually mature Christians, was that they could play fast and loose with other gods. In chapter 8, they argued that they could go to the temple dining rooms, places where they served meals, almost like a restaurant that had been sacrificed to idols, and it would be okay. The problem, Paul argues, there is this hurts your brother because they are led to think that this is acceptable, that it's okay to play with idols. Now, how could spiritually mature Christians think this way? Well, if you turn back a couple of pages, look at chapter 8, verse 4 in 1 Corinthians. They had this figured out. And the ESV translation does a nice job here with the quotation marks because the quotation marks are what these mature people were saying. Paul writes, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, 
we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there is no God but one. See, they were theological giants. If there's only one God and these idols over here are not real, well, then I can go over there and eat their food. It's as good as any other food. The people that are worshiping those false gods are just deluded. I know better, and so I am free to do whatever I want. This extended to those temple dining rooms. It extended to eating uh, meat at the marketplace, which may have come from a temple. It extended to eating in unbelievers' homes uh, uh, who were non-Christians. And here in chapter 10 specifically, it dealt with even going to these temples to other gods and participating in the rituals of those temples. I am theologically adept. I am spiritually mature. I can play fast and loose with other gods. Well, back to chapter 10 and the warning. He brings up Israel. Israel thought they had it all figured out, right? They had all the blessings of God. They ate the same food. They ate the manna. They got the water from the rock. They all passed through the cloud. They all passed through the sea. Yet with most of them, Paul says, God was not pleased and he scattered their bodies across the wilderness. Why? Because they played fast and loose with other gods. Look at the examples he cites. In verse 7, it's a quotation from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. You know that story, that's the golden calf. Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments. He comes back down, and Israel has made for itself a golden calf and proclaimed that as the God which led them out of Egypt. What's interesting is Paul doesn't cite the making of the golden calf. What does he cite as the problem? The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Exactly what the Corinthians were doing with these other gods. Then verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 8. This reference to Numbers 25 where some Israel's, uh, Israelites sacrificed and ate with the gods of Moab. What happened to them? 23,000 killed in a single day. Next verse, a reference to Numbers chapter 21, where the Israelites were complaining about, guess what, the food, and God sent serpents to destroy them. And anyone who did not look up to the serpent that God had set up, his means of deliverance lifted up, they too would be destroyed because they were making their own gods. Pretty pleasant way to argue, isn't it? What Paul is saying is that God will not mess around with false gods. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the sins of the fathers upon the third and fourth generations of those that hate me. You Corinthians think you've got this all figured out? You think you can do better than the Israelites did? God killed his people in Israel when they did this. And what will happen to you when you do the same? In fact, it's even worse for the Corinthians 
that little statement about those upon whom the ends of the ages have come in verse 11, that's not gospel. That's not gospel at all. In fact, because Paul is saying you should know even better than the Israelites. Because they were looking for Christ in anticipation, you see him in fulfillment. You should know better, and if God punished them in this way, what will he do to you? Well, does this warning apply to us? We don't have temple dining rooms. We don't, most of the time, go to the temples of other gods and participate in rituals. But we're pretty theologically adept people. We're pretty spiritually mature. We like to think that we have things figured out, and we could split a hair as to what's acceptable before God and what is not. But what about our people? Do our people play fast and loose with other gods? Let me give you a couple of examples that are happening among us even now. The first is the reinvention of Jesus. Oh, lots of people talk about Jesus today, but what Jesus do they talk about? The most popular Jesus we have today is a guy who tells me stuff, who gives me nice moral advice to live my life with, who gave me a nice model, especially of love and acceptance. But all the stuff about miracles, all the stuff about cross and tomb, eh, you know, we don't really need to worry about that. In fact, they just found his tomb, didn't they? So we don't need to worry about that kind of stuff anymore. But we still have the teachings of Jesus. As long as we have that, we're okay. That Jesus, my friends, is another God. And worship or claiming that kind of Jesus among us is no different from what the Israelites did. And results not in blessing, but in condemnation. Or here's another Jesus. Maybe one that's a little more typical among us. The Jesus who simply turns my life around. Not in a repentance, new life kind of way, but in a win the lottery kind of a way. The Jesus who wants you to have an abundant life. To have your best life now. The Jesus who wants to make all your relationships better. The the Jesus who wants you to enjoy everything. No call to sacrifice. No call to discipleship. No call to service. And of course, no cross. This is another false god. Yet what is the Jesus that is proclaimed from our pulpits? Is it a Jesus who dies and rises? Or a Jesus who makes things just a little bit better for us? Let me give you another example of playing fast and loose with the gods of our age. And this is, I think, even more common than the first two. The way it's so easy in our society to treat all gods as if they're the same. As if what Barnes & Noble has done with the religion section is acceptable. Christianity, Islam, Buddha, New Age spirituality, Christianity, just line them up on the shelves, take your pick. They're all different ways to access the same spiritual reality. Religious pluralism is embraced. We can all learn from one another's spiritual experiences. And the last thing we should be doing is helping my neighbor down the street learn about Jesus. Because he has his way of coming at God. And who am I to tell him otherwise? By leaving him where he is, we are leaving him under God's judgment 
and treating the true God as if it does not matter. A third example is a new one. At least it's new to me. Have you heard The Secret? Oprah has. Montel has. And I'll bet that not a few people sitting among you in the pews yesterday have as well. It's the number one selling book and the number one selling DVD in the United States right now. The Secret. What's the secret? I'm not entirely sure. I'm trying intensely to avoid actually reading this stuff. But flying back from St. Louis last weekend, I had the middle seat between two women, both of whom were reading The Secret. I I couldn't not initiate a conversation. I found out that The Secret is that you, by your meditation, your uh, channeling your energies and reaching out uh, in, in, in kind of hope, can shape your desired future. So if you want to have more stuff, you meditate on it, go for it, and it happens. Somehow you tap the powers of the universe for this to happen. You want better relationships, you, you, you seek this desired future, and it happens. It's all over the place. As I was talking with these women, uh, I found out that one of them was, or is, a member of an LCMS congregation in the St. Louis area, I'm not going to tell you which one, knows her pastor, knows her field workers, yet was able to say that this sounds just like Jesus, because ask and you will receive. The next night, this was on a Sunday, the next night she was having all her friends over to watch the secret DVD. I guess it's what you call evangelism. How does it happen that this is taking place in our churches? How does it happen that we could treat God so loosely, as if there are many different ways to come to him, as if we can call him by other names or tap into other spiritual approaches, slap God on it, and it's acceptable. How has this happened among us? What happened to arrogant Israel? They were judged. What happened to arrogant Corinth? They were judged. The warning Paul gave to the Corinthians must not be lightly passed over by us, on whom the end of the ages has also come. It can and is happening among us in our theological adeptness, in our spiritual maturity, in our taking our theological correctness and using it as an excuse to play with idols. Well, there is no gospel in this text. Even a little bit at the end is not really gospel. I don't have time to walk you through that. That's as much a rebuke as anything in this text. But I cannot leave here without proclaiming to you who this one God is. He is not found in your heart. He is not found in some book which is made to look like some ancient manuscript. He is not found in pages that are torn apart and sayings of Jesus here and sayings of Jesus there that we pick and choose from among. We don't find this Jesus through our theological acumen or our spiritual maturity. The end of the ages has come upon us, but not in judgment and death, rather in mercy and in forgiveness, solely because of the death and the resurrection of our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we stand firm? 
only by being held up by the one who laid down his life for us, only to take it up again three days later. To him, and him alone, do we owe all worship and praise. And so we now confess, in the words of the hymn, you are God. Amen.